This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. This week, it's all about the Bloomberg Global Business Forum. This is a gathering of high-level individuals from both the public and private sector. So we're talking about world leaders. We're talking about leaders of corporations. And it's all about working together, collaborations. It's big conversations, but it's also not just talk, it's action. Mm -hmm. People really sort of presenting their bona fides about what they're doing to change the world, whether it's around social responsibility, whether it's about the climate, or whether it's about just trying to figure out what's next in the world. Among the interviews you will hear over the next couple hours from the GBF, as we call it, John Gray, the president of Blackstone, Bruce Flatt, the CEO of Brookfield. Together, Carol, they've got a trillion dollars in assets under management and we even talked to a queen. We did indeed. But first up, we're going to bring you a wide-ranging panel discussion with the CEO and chairman of Blackstone Group, Steve Schwartzman. Of course, he's also a co-founder of that firm. CEO and chairman of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, and Anand Mahindra, chairman of Mahindra Group. Steve Schwartzman kicked off the conversation talking about what he's most worried about. Jeez. <laughs> There's a lot to worry about, uh, you know, because... You know, first of all, just stepping back from it, uh, you know, the social media and the Internet are making it very difficult uh, for almost any government uh, to function. Uh, if you come out with a plan, uh, you have instant uh, mobilization of opposition to anything you're doing. It even makes it difficult for companies uh, uh, sometime uh, with sort of this roving band of uh, opposition. Uh, and, and, you know, financially, um, you know, sort of the, you have a few weaknesses in, in the system. I think the European banking system isn't as uh, uh, strong, certainly, as uh, the U.S., which is in great shape. Uh, you, you have um, um, private investments in the technology area, which the WeWork uh, um, you know, sort of non-public offering mm -hmm. has exposed as, as being, uh, you know, really uh, pretty inflated when you, when you have an industry that more or less marks up its positions, uh, you know, uh, in, in a closed circle uh, among itself, and, and then it pops out into the real world, uh, and the real world says, what are you thinking? Uh, th that's usually, um, you know, sort of a, a wake-up call, but it's, you know, that... That part of the world isn't big. That's a, that's a relatively small uh, uh, set. Um, and I guess any of us on the stage, uh, and then I'll finish because I don't want to dominate anything. It, when you have $13 trillion of uh, negative interest rates, I don't even know what a negative interest rate is. <laughs> and, and in other words, why would I take my money and give it to somebody and for the privilege of them holding it, I have to pay them? Like it's a storage unit. Uh, and I, I'm supposed to get interest when I give people money. And as, as interest rates go down, uh, most of those places that have those negative interest rates, it's not stimulative. Does this negative rate environment that we increasingly see around the globe tell you that there's some underlying weakness that maybe we're missing? We, see, we know the obvious problems that are out there, but is there something more substantial? I think Steve's point is right. There's the monetary policy decision to take rates as low as possible to accommodate the economy, accommodate growth, and they're lower in this country than they've been historically, but they're still positive and other places are negative. And 
there's a significant amount of it. I think there's a debate whether it actually transmits the economy because if you look in some of the countries where the rate structure has been negative for five years, mm -hmm. the banks still have to pay consumer depositors interest because, to Steve's point, they're not going to give us $100 and get 95 back and think it's a great thing. And so I think there's a great debate the economists will hack out. But the reality is it's showing a weakness in economies. And it means there's probably more fiscal work done and more reform work done to stimulate those economies. And well, good luck with that. And good luck with that. The good news is in the U.S., you already have an economy which is pretty flexible and work uh, uh, talented people, uh, lots of capital, deep capital markets, uh, a banking system that restructured, uh, a, a set of rules that you can understand, one law that covers an economy that's the largest in the world as opposed to you know, multiple laws. And so you're seeing the U.S. continue to grow, unemployment's low, and consumers continue to spend. Well, and so, Anand, I, I put that to you. Are we at a, a breaking point uh, where we may see something snap here, or can we continue on, uh, especially from a consumer perspective, in, in a nice upward, gentle trajectory? Let me start on a lighter note first, because when you asked uh, Steve this question about what's on your mind, I do have a very weighty global problem on my mind right now, and that is I have a two-year-old grandson who lives in New York, whose father is Mexican-American and speaks to him only in Spanish. So right now, my major preoccupation is how to improve my Spanish so I can communicate with my <laughs> grandchildren. <laughs> but if you look at it, that's a lighter note, but frankly, that to me is the real thing that worries me about the world. You look at it from a human-centered point. When you try to operate in a hundred countries, language, communication, keeping the core of your business and the governance and the values of people is a major problem. So I'm looking at more as a, I'm not really worried about growth. I think we have enough locuses of growth to come up. I'm really not worried about consumer demand coming in from different parts of the world. Mm. We just have to look around the world all the focus has been on America, rightfully, but I think you're going to see an uptake in a lot of other parts of the world. And that's the CEO and chairman of the Blackstone Group, Steve Schwartzman, the CEO and chairman of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, and Mahindra Group chairman, Anand Mahindra. And what's really interesting, Jason, about these three collectively, we're talking about $300 billion in market cap, and they employ some 900,000 people around the globe. So when you want to really know what's going on in the world, these folks together it's a huge global footprint. So let's continue our conversation with Blackstone, Steve Schwartzman, Bank of America's Brian Moynihan, and Mahindra Group's Anand Mahindra. One of the things we wanted to know, are we headed for a recession? Brian Moynihan weighed in first. If you look at the, all the consensus, you know, the 38 economists, when I talked to David, I said, look, there's nobody has a negative sign in front of any of their estimates. And so in the bottom five, probably average in the mid, you know, 5.5 for G GDP U.S. next year and stuff. So even though people are saying the probability is going up, because that's the uncertainty, the question is nobody's predicting it's going to happen. The fear you have is, going to your point, it's only Wednesday and, and what's going on. Mm -hmm. Will you get the consumer confidence to, uh, to right. deteriorate? It, right now, it's, it's come up, it's come down a little bit, and will you get to deteriorate? If, if that starts to happen, that's the worry. You do not see that in their activity every day. Um, the, the combination of housing prices still being constructive, which that part of the wealth is constructive. The stock market still being up, that part of their wealth is constructive. Their wages growing faster now than they have really since any, uh, any point in the last eight, nine years. The em employment levels being high. So that's always the, the good news. The question is what breaks that? And that's what I worry about, the, the psychology of business deteriorating somewhat. Again, high, high, still very high, but tipped over a little bit. When, do the, when does a, a business owner 
convey to their uh, teammates that it might not be as good for you this year, next year, i.e. higher wages, a bigger bonus, you know, more incentive plans, whatever, or you get to keep your job. We do not see that. In our, our middle market loans are growing at a faster clip now than they were in the last few years. So it's all okay. And, that, and that's the question that we said. And I think the fear could cause us to back up before the data will show you're there. So some of that fear and caution, Steve, comes from this dispute between the U.S. and China. There are few people who have done as much, dare I say, shuttle diplomacy than you have between the leader, leaders of those two countries. You write about it uh, in your book. Steve's book, by the way, is on sale now. I don't know if uh, anybody's <laughs> heard about it. What it takes. Um, but We'll have that commercial in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by. But you do write extensively about China in the book. Your experience there, the Schwarzman scholars, your relationship with President Xi. How does this get resolved, at least to the satisfaction that the CEOs that, that Brian is talking about specifically feel good enough to start spending money again? Yeah, um, I'll talk about that in one second, but, but just in terms of risk, uh, I, I've always felt that um, you know, this cycle, when it comes to an end, won't do it uh, from, from normal you know, business cycle issues because that seems to be managed pretty well. Uh, it, it'll be some type of geopolitical uh, type of incident or Brexit, circumstance which, which uh, uh, hits the confidence uh, of consumers. Uh, it, it won't be overproduction of goods and things like that. I could be wrong, but I've, I've been thinking about this for a few years and, and we got enough of these major things that, that could uh, change people's uh, attitudes. Uh, you know, we're at full employment. Uh, you know, so so people have a good situation, but their behavior may change uh, if they're scared of something. Uh, as as to China, U.S. Um, uh, that's a uh, it, it's, it's an interesting situation because uh, b basically driven uh, by the fact that you know in the last uh, presidential election we discovered. That that 40% of Americans uh, couldn't write a $400 check in an emergency. So so if you think about that, th these are people who fundamentally don't have savings, uh, and they don't earn much money, uh, and their their education, American education, has really slipped dramatically uh, over the last 30 to 40 years, and and those those people are very unhappy. Uh, and, and they, they, in effect, are demanding some type of change, and, and part of that change happens uh, when, they don't, when they don't get satisfied with domestic solutions. Historically, with populism, um, you, you get angry at some foreign uh, entity, and, and China's the target. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty obvious that it was going to be, and I, I talked to the Chinese about that right after the election, and, they, they were not sensitive to that. And I told them, don't, don't worry about it. We, we didn't understand it either, uh, you know, which is why you know, we had a president elected that nobody thought would be elected, mm -hmm. except him. Uh, and, and so we all learned something. I said, don't feel bad. You, know, you, you didn't have bad staff work, but now you know. And they, 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 they said, okay, well, you know, if that's the case, we're gonna have to uh, adjust. Now, China for 40 years uh, has been growing faster than any major country in history. 
Uh, and so this is like whatever practices they have, which in history when you're, you know, sort of a, we used to call them, you know, developing countries or underdeveloped countries. Uh, now we call them emerging markets. Uh, you know, they, and the United States did this in the 19th century. We hide behind tariff walls. Uh, you protect your industries. Uh, you, you don't let foreigners in into certain things that, you know, where, where they can compete. Uh, and, and that world lives until you become a more mature country and then you integrate. Well, I think, I think in China, part of, part of the interesting issue is they still think they're poor and we sort of think they're rich. And their, their GDP per capita is $10,000. Uh, ours is roughly 60. But when they started this sprint 40 years ago, I think it was like $400 a person. So, so there's been enormous progress. But they're, they're still, you know, sort of like one-sixth uh, of us. And now we're demanding our bottom 40% in effect. Uh, and also, European countries don't like, they have similar problems uh, that, that we're asking China to, like, become a more mature country and, and join uh, the rest of the world. Their attitude is we're still poor. So, so okay, if we have to make adjustments, um, it's, it's not our favorite thing to do. Uh, what, what do we do? And, and so what you've been seeing over the last two and a half years is, is, is the U.S. wanting them, you know, as sort of the leader of the developed world, to, to come pretty far. And on the Chinese side, um, they're trying to figure out how far and how fast right. they, they want to get someplace. So, 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 you know, the two countries got quite close. Um, in May, at, at which point the Chinese just w withdrew. They, right. you know, they had agreed to a variety of things we thought, uh, and then they looked at the whole and they said, uh, you know, my goodness, let's not do that. And now this is starting again. And meanwhile, what, what's happened in this two and a half years is that the, the two countries have, have, have started, um, as a result of false starts and, and, and a variety of other tactical stuff, you know, are, are starting to decouple. We continue with our panel with CEO and Chairman of Blackstone Group, Steve Schwartzman, the CEO and Chairman of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, and Anand Mahindra, Chairman of Mahindra Group. And Mahindra was so interesting because we wanted to talk about the U.S.-China trade war, and he's got operations in 100 countries, but he clearly thinks of the world from an Indian perspective. Here's his take on the trade war. I see it as a situation of enormous opportunity. I, I have to be mercenary Wait, about that. Wait, you mean the spat you do? Of course, absolutely, because to be, and I'm, I'm just being truthful here, that for a long time it wasn't kosher for anyone in American policy positions to admit that there was a kind of conflict with China and that India, in fact, could be one of the players uh, in this game as a buffer against China. That was just a no-no. If you went to the Council on Foreign Relations, nobody would admit that. I think it's now it's in the open. And I think President Trump has even made it more in the open. I mean, going to Houston and listening to our Prime Minister, I think he made it very clear what kind of alliance he had. I think there's nothing but opportunity for India in this. And we have to play our cards right mm -hmm. and see that we are viewed now as a very, very appropriate ally for the U.S. as a buffer both in defense terms, frankly. If you look at the number of defense exercises between 
the U.S. and India, they're proliferating dramatically. Defense procurement from, the, from India is already burgeoning. We never used to buy. We used to buy more from the Russians. And frankly, all the, all the tenor of the relationship with India is right. This is a democratic country. It's a country that values IPR. This is a country that has scale and growth. So there is profit for global companies too over there. So I think India has nothing but a unique opportunity right now and we have to just play those cards right. And I think it will be a win-win for both the U.S. and for India. So it, it, I actually agree in having been with a bunch of CEOs with the Prime Minister this morning, all who are talking about their business expanding in India. It's been a natural recipient and I think some of the uh, bureaucracy and things that were difficult to operate have been de dealt with. They, they can be improved and everybody knows. I, I think the broader context here, though, is, is you know, global trade. And, and if you go back and say, if, if the China-U.S. situation will take longer, the question is, what can we resolve in the interim? And this is where, unfortunately, I'm not sure what happens, given the, the politics and the uh, situation this week, to USMCA and things like that, which are critical to get mm -hmm. done. Because a, as much as India is a beneficiary, uh, Mexico and Canada in a, in a trade with the U.S. is a beneficiary uh, in a sense, or a way to operate. Let's make it simpler. The wage scale in Mexico is, is actually lower than parts of China. There's a, a, they could use the jobs. There's a lot of people who could move the manufacturing there. Uh, there's already integrated manufacturing uh, supply chains. Canada's a different situation. So I think to keep the U.S. kind of moving forward, there are three or four things to knock out. Everybody hopes for China, U.S., but there are a couple things to knock out first, and one of them is a USMCA. I right. just don't know politically if they can push it through, mm -hmm. even though I think both sides seem to want it. And if they could right. push that through, that would be good and give more time to work, I think, on China. So, Brad, I want to stick with something that you said in the context uh, of the meeting that you had with Prime Minister Modi, which is clearly CEOs are stepping into a brighter and maybe higher expectation type spotlight. We hear it over and over again. Do you feel a greater responsibility now, especially given what's going on in Washington and London and capitals around the world, to speak out both on your own issues related to business, but also social issues? We, in the end of the day, especially our company's been around for 230 plus years. And so we've been around through all kinds of fun stuff, if you think about it. But, but the reality is our job is to produce, produce profits and make progress on what society needs us to do. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the purpose statement by the BRT, the work I do that we all do with the International Business Council and the World Economics Forum leadership for years, the idea is we have to have companies can do both, produce a great profit and make sustainable, uh, make progress on the SDGs. Mm -hmm. And so I think all the CEOs agree with that. And I, I, so the attribute where people say we're speaking out publicly on an issue generally comes from the need on that second but it also reverberates the first. If you have teammates working for you, and you went what we went through over the last five or six years on post nightclub, Charleston, Vegas, uh, Houston, Parkland, and you had teammates in every one of those situations, that led our team to say, we ought to take a stand on something. It was not because we needed to go out and make some policy statement. Hmm. It was because if you think about to have great teammates to make that profit you have to make, you have to protect them. On HB2, which was a North Carolina issue about the, we had to come out because it was our headquarters town and our people would not travel there. Hmm. And so, well, people are thinking this is about you know, me or something. It's not. It's about we have to represent the 200,000 teammates, the five or 600,000 people and their families and insure them well and pay them well. But also we need them to be successful. 
and to produce great profit and sustain you know, progress on the SDGs. And that and is the key. So let's continue our conversation with Blackstone Group Steve Schwartzman, Brian Moynihan from Bank of America, and Anand Mahindra from the Mahindra Group. This time around, we hear from Steve Schwartzman addressing some of the criticisms of private equity. Private equity um, uh, industry is, is comprised of a lot of different uh, firms. and But basically what we do is, uh, leaving other asset classes like real estate aside, um, we buy companies and we try and make them grow faster uh, because when you exit, you get a higher multiple for higher growth. Uh, and, and to do that, you have to invest in these businesses. They just don't grow faster because it's in your interest. So, so you put more capital in them uh, and, and you come up with good strategies uh, and you, you drive growth. So, so when you grow businesses, you typically need more people. Uh, and, and so um, th this is sort of a virtuous circle. Uh, and you know, from a financial risk perspective, um, you know, we went through the global financial crisis and private equity firms didn't, didn't you know, have financial difficulties more than other kind of companies. Mm -hmm. so, so, so on the downside, um, the, the industry hasn't really created much difficulties. Um, on the upside, you, you earn typically for your investors who are pension funds, they're regular people. They're the firemen, the government employees, the corporate employees. Uh, you make double the stock market indexes. So, so basically, this is a really good model. Uh, uh, in the 1980s, uh, it wasn't so much like that. In the 1980s, there were only a few firms and, and prices were so low uh, in the 80s that you could buy something and just cut costs, uh, lay off some people, and you were successful. That world is just gone uh, with the kind of higher prices that you have to pay to buy anything today. Uh, you, you just can't be successful doing that. You, you must grow your way out of uh, you know, the creation price. And, and so I think there's some leftover perceptions. There are also an occasional uh, high-profile uh, type of uh, situation, whether it's in the retail business. Yes. But, but you must look at retail generally, and, and Brian would know more than I do, but retail has been, with the disintermediation mm -hmm. of the internet, the number of retail companies that have gone busted are huge. The same way you could get a private equity company that owns a newspaper. That was in this political treatise uh, that one of the candidates came up with. What's happened to newspapers? I mean, the vast majority of them have gotten into trouble. So you can take one example and, and make something out of it. But, but just to give you context, right? There were 66, there were roughly 151 million jobs in the United States. Uh, 66 million people changed jobs in a given year, right? U.S. economy is unbelievably dynamic. The number of people who were fired in the United States was 21 million. The number of total jobs in the private equity-owned uh, companies is 11 million. So when you look at the massive amount of companies, where do you get those 21 million people who, who lost their jobs? It's not from private equity, it's a very small part of, of the whole economy. So, so this, this argument 
is wrong. Uh, and it, it's sort of pyramids, mistake on mistake. And, and I think there's, there's an ideology that goes with it. And also terrible marketing on the part of the private equity firms. You have to give them a D. <laughs> uh, for not being able to explain this. Right. This is pretty simple stuff. No, but get stuff. your message or right. explain what you're doing. So because of where we are and, and all the discussions that we've had uh, at this summit about climate and sustainability, I think it's fair to say that when we look back on this week, even this very newsy week, the star, and I'm, apologies to, to all of you, is going to be a 16-year-old. Uh, Greta Thunberg, her statement about uh, what the world is doing or not doing related to, to climate change. I'm just going to quote what she said to the heads of state. People are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing. We're at the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of endless economic growth. How dare you? That's memorable. Is she right? Are we not doing enough as governments and as companies to really face this? And are corporate leaders, at least, Anand, listening? I think they were. I was very pleasantly surprised to see the number of people who showed up at the climate events. The CEOs who signed up wearing that large ungainly badge about the 1.5 degree ambition. That's not a pretty badge. So to wear that itself was <laughs> it's not a, a fashion statement. Not a fashion statement. But people are committed and you know my I've had one statement I make about sustainability and I've been repeating it with monotonous regularity. I don't really intend to get into the debate of whether climate change is real, who is the guilty party, who's not done it, has the West polluted, should the West be paying and India only benefiting, should we be getting money, I stay out of that. My statement is, it's very simple. This is the biggest profit opportunity for business people in the next few decades. Why are even we wasting time arguing about who's right, who's wrong, whether it's a 16-year-old or it's the president of the US? You know, frankly, somebody asked me the other day in a podcast, they said, do you have a message for governments and do you have a message for other companies? I said, yes, I do. A little tongue-in-cheek. And I said to governments, I would say, please, don't fight climate change. Don't invest in innovative technology. Let India do it. Let us get ahead of the game. And then you come in after we've put ourselves right on the top. And to my fellow company, people in business, I would say, climate change isn't real. Just stay out of the game. Keep arguing with the 16-year-old girl. We are making money at everything we've done in renewables. Let Mahindra Group go out there, clean up the opportunities. You come in later. Because to me, the point I was making was this is futile. And we are just creating almost a media-created sensation of villain, victim. And frankly, the winners are everybody. Because everything our group has done in sustainability has actually made money. And the businesses we've started in the last five years are amongst the fastest growing. Waste to energy, solar. Why are we even wasting time on arguments? We, we agree. I, I'd agree. The, the time, the debate, the debate and the arguments of what's going on scientifically and stuff are, are just don't help. And, and I agree that with Anand, you know, the reality is we have to make progress and we have to make a lot of progress. It costs about $2 trillion a year uh, is the estimate for the environmental part of the SDGs, $6 trillion overall. All the charity world's $800 billion a year. 
the U.S. government budget's only $4 trillion a year. So there's only, no government's going to solve this and no charity's going to solve it. Who's going to solve it is capitalism and driving the change. So in the last, since 2007 to 2019, we did $125 billion of stuff around the environment. In the next seven years, 10 years, we'll do another $300 billion. That is, you know, green bonds. That is, we're carbon neutral in 20, not five years from now. Mm -hmm. We're carbon neutral next year. Um, it is solar uh, installations across the country of India. It's solar installations across uh, the largest uh, uh, warehouses of the United States. It's wind farm financing. There's a tremendous business opportunity, but it's time for capitalism to come to drive it because that's where the money will be. And so it's how we operate as a company, and all of us have companies who operate and driving them to carbon neutrality and making that commitment. It's how we then finance the build out. And it's the last part is a key thing, and Anand mentioned this. We can't be, in the Western developed countries, we cannot be of a sort that we will not allow other countries to have the energy that they need to have to develop. We have to produce the right energy for them. That it was sustainable energy for all from the last UN Secretary General where they figured out a plan and how much it cost. That is the critical thing is we can't be arrogant in the West or developed countries and say, hey, you can't have the power. We have to sit there and say, we will get you the power the right way. And that, that is where we really got to watch what's going on with coal and other things in some of these economies. We have to provide the replacement, even if it costs us all money. But I think the business opportunity actually takes care of it. That goes back to the point, you can produce a profit and you can make the goals. And if you look at what we're doing, and this, is a, this has become a large business for us. And, yeah. and, so you and know, you asked about, is Greta right? Again, about saying you're just focusing on money. I would just say, Greta, let it be about money. Mm. Don't make it about either or. Right. You've got to dish that dichotomy. So the only argument I both. have with her, it's, about it's both. both. Yeah. It's because she's making it sound like give up your ways of making money and worry about the environment. I'm saying the real power is not that. So she is wrong. I'm saying we're businessmen. You're showing us the money. There is money there. And the, the, the pursuit of profit and capitalism is in fact one of the answers to this solution. So I, I would argue with her if I met her that don't make it so you know, black and white. That's CEO and chairman of Blackstone Group, Steve Schwartzman, CEO and chairman of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, and Anand Mahindra, chairman of Mahindra Group, and really a wide-ranging conversation we had with them. We had a lot of fun, more fun maybe than people thought we would. <laughs> it's such a serious discussion, but these guys surprisingly optimistic about the state of the world. That was certainly my takeaway. It was a wide-ranging conversation. We talked about a lot of things, had some fun with these individuals, some great perspective on some of the troubles that America has certainly got on through its history. Some of these companies who have been around for 200 years, like Bank of America, what it has had to deal with over its lifetime and how it still survived. Some great perspective. And you can hear all of it on our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. And one of the big themes, obviously, of the event is that it was all about looking at climate change. Certainly the UN General Assembly uh, addressed that issue as well. And so the conversations, Jason, of course, were saying we can address the concerns about climate change as well as run businesses and make investments. They don't have to be one or the other. We can do them hand in hand. Well, and Anand Mahindra making that point very mm -hmm. clearly, essentially saying this is one of the biggest opportunities we have before us. It's something he's investing heavily in in the renewable space. Jason, one of the things that I really took away from the event, and of course we had Indian Prime Minister Modi there, uh, really 
really making a pitch saying India is open for business. But I do wonder in this time when there's so much tension between the United States and China uh, over trade policy, whether or not we're starting to see a shift in terms of where we might see manufacturing, collaboration between uh, businesses and looking at maybe the Indian market as a, as a place to really open up shop or well, do more business there. Well, we certainly put the global in Global Business Forum, we as did. you said, with so many heads of state and world leaders who think about the entire planet. And Bruce Flatt is a great example of that. He's going to have about $500 billion in assets under management. That's half a trillion dollars right. once he combines Brookfield with Oak Tree. That's coming up in the coming week. So we talked about Brexit. We talked about how the trade war is affecting what he's doing. But we actually caught up with John Gray. He's the president and COO of Blackstone. So he's Steve Schwartzman's successor. Here's that conversation. Just jumping into what feels like the big question right now, which is cautious businesses optimistic consumers. Help me understand, is there a disconnect? Is there a lag? What's going on? Well, I think what you're seeing is you've got some uncertainty in the world. You certainly have some friction from the China trade. You've got the Brexit situation, and you just have some geopolitical concerns that are making everybody nervous. Businesses are responding by pulling back a bit. You see that in manufacturing, industrial data, capital investment, and you're beginning to see that in earnings from companies. So that's one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, the consumer is actually doing pretty well around the world, particularly here in the U.S. So I was talking to a friend about what I think of as the three threes, which are we have 3.7% unemployment, wages are growing north of 3%, and home prices are growing north of 3%. So if you think about the consumer, they have a job, wages are going up, and their biggest assets appreciating in value. And that's why you see this bifurcation. So I'd say when you add it together, I think what it leads to is not a recession, but a slowdown in growth globally, which is what we're experiencing. And so how much does it slow down and when? Are we in that now? I think we're in that now. It's hard to say. The good news is central banks have decided you know, that they're going to lower rates and continue to stimulate, which has helped soften the blow a bit. And it's possible that some of these issues, like China trade or Brexit, get resolved, which would take a little bit of this uncertainty away. I think as investors, though, you don't want to get too caught up in sort of the heat of the moment. You'd want to try to take a longer term view. So where are you spending money? I know your investors are asking you that yeah. every time they get on the phone with you. Where are you deploying capital? You got 500 plus billion dollars yeah. in assets. Well, that is the big question. I think in this point in the economy where you have slow growth, you also have pretty high multiples, right? The, the low rate of interest rates, it's created expanded multiples. So you have to be cautious on where you invest. What we're looking at are places where technology is creating a lot of change and where they're really in the path of growth, industries in the path of growth. So globally in logistics, we've talked about it before, we've been the big buyer of warehouses around the world, probably bought $70 billion on the simple premise that goods are moving from physical retail to online retail. We're doing things around content creation as a result of the cost of distribution of media coming down. You want to service that industry software as a solution, things migrating to the cloud. We bought a big business that does uh, things in the human resource area online. Um, India, another area that's benefiting from IT services. So I think as the global economy transformed, 
even though the overall growth rate isn't that high, trying to find those industries and sectors that have the wind at their back is really important. So you a net buyer or are you a net seller at this point across all of your empire? You know, I, I would say it's a bit of both. I, I wouldn't say, you know, there's one clear path. I think when we find businesses that have stabilized and sort of our buy it, fix it, sell it approach, we exit. On the other hand, there are plenty of things that we still have conviction in and we hold. So you're seeing us sell, but at the same time deploy a lot of capital. We put out $56 billion of capital in the last 12 months. So we're still finding interesting things. I would say it's more selective and it tends to be in larger situations. Uh, 30 seconds to go. Real estate. How are you feeling, especially in the United States, residential and commercial? I would say okay. Uh, The headwind is that prices are high, multiples are high for real estate, the economy slowed. The good news is that supply is pretty limited and rates remain low. I think, again, you've got to focus on where do you see better growth? So west coast of the United States, more technology, more job creation, warehouses, again, another area as opposed to retail. And then rental housing, the shortage of new home construction has led to strength in rental housing and single-family homes. And that's John Gray, the president and COO of the Blackstone Group. And what I liked about him is a little bit rapid fire. We're just trying to get so much done on that day, Mm -hmm. but basically weighing in on what businesses are thinking, what consumers are thinking, and essentially what investors are asking, which is how you spending all that money. Yeah, exactly. But he does see the economy slowing. So it was interesting to hear his perspective on that. So heads of state interacting with big global investors. One great example of that, Bruce Flatt. He is the CEO of Brookfield. They are about to combine with Oak Tree, and that will make them really Blackstone in an interesting twist. They're going to have about half a trillion dollars in assets under management of their own. Yeah. Talk about perspective, right, in terms of what they're overseeing. Here's that conversation. So as you're moving around, not just this event, but around New York City, you're talking to a lot of heads of state, a lot of investors. It's a world of instability, it feels like, fair to say. But how does it feel to a big investor? Look, I'd say uh, politically, many countries are up in the air and, uh, uh, and, and pretty extreme politics in those places. But on, on the ground in business, actually, it's pretty constructive. Uh, most countries of the world are doing okay. And uh, as value investors, we look for places where you can put money for a long term you can make decent returns uh, in the fullness of time. And uh, instability sometimes brings opportunities. So uh, you just need to think long term right. in these situations. Well, let's talk about those opportunities because, as you say, maybe some of this uncertainty drives valuations down because valuations have been pretty high, it feels like, for the past couple of years. Are you seeing that yet? Yeah. Well, not in, in, the, uh, in the developed markets. Uh, valuations are still high. So, so our focus is special situations in those places. Yeah. Um, but... You know, Europe is being driven by interest rates that are really low today. Um, India has uh, um, a situation where the financial system needs capital. So there's a lot of opportunity there. In China, we're seeing more opportunities because of just the deleveraging going on in the country. And that's a positive and it creates opportunity. All right. So you mentioned China. U.S.-China trade, obviously top of mind, continues to be... How does that play through, if at all, into your investments or into your thesis about the world? So, so our, our business is about um, buying real things, real assets. We buy pipelines, toll roads, real estate, renewable power plants, and, and they're local investments in every country. 
So we're in 35 countries in the world, but we're a local investor in every single country. So it's not, trade doesn't really affect. On the margins, it does. If it affects a country's economy, mm -hmm. it obviously affects investments. If it affect, hits currencies, it affects your investment as a global investor. But uh, we're an on-the-ground investor, so trade isn't as important to us. Do you worry, as someone who has to think about the whole world, of the implications of a decoupling between the U.S. and China? Or does that just mildly change what the landscape looks like? Look, I'd say, again, as a long-term value group, um, we try to find great places in the world which have rule of law, functioning systems, respect for capital, operate with standards that we can operate with. We like to go there and we invest for long periods of time. Right. Yes. Does, uh, all, do all these things affect us? Yes, in the short term. In the long term, not really. So let's talk about one specific local national situation. That's Brexit. You're a big uh, landowner and, and a big landlord, I should say. There in London, Canary Wharf obviously has been a big project. you got a lot invested there. How does that play through? We do. Um, business has been good since Brexit happened. Every day that this gets extended and nothing happens, fewer decisions get made, and that's not helpful for business. In the fullness of time, I think just getting something resolved will be a good thing for everyone, and London is going to be a center of commerce for a long time, and uh, we just need, a, we just need a, a solution to it. That's all. Do you feel like uh, folks are making or putting off decisions? You know, people who would be leasing from you are putting off decisions? No, look, we had one building. Brexit happened. It was 25% leased. It opens this month. It's 100% leased at the rents we thought. So people make decisions. It takes longer. And right now, why would you make a decision in this month? So you'll wait. But uh, people do make decisions. They have to. Business goes on. Life goes on. And when you think about the infrastructure sort of possibilities that are out there right now, that's clearly on the minds of a lot of people here in the guise of sustainability and where those sorts of investments are happening. You mentioned renewables. How has your strategy evolved even over the past few years in terms of the types of infrastructure deals you might be doing? Yes. Yeah, so in renewables, we're the... I think the largest private owner of renewables in the world. We've always believed in it. Uh, we were a large hydro owner for many decades. Uh, in the last 10 years, we've pushed into wind and solar, and uh, we'll continue to do that because we think it's, it's for the future. And, the, and, and why it's different today is that it's actually economically feasible to do it without, without uh, subsidies. Therefore, we're putting a, a much, much more emphasis on that. Infrastructure in the world, though, is going to go, in, go into private hands. Right. Governments are indebted. They need to provide services to their people and more and more. And every country will be different, but more and more uh, infrastructure will be funded by private, by private entities. And we're one of them that can um, put capital together for that. You've got a lot of big investment partners around the world who commit hundreds of uh, billions of dollars, hundreds of millions, I should say, ultimately in, in hundreds of billions that you've collected. What's their mood right now? If you can generalize across the big institutional investors. You know, I just say that everyone in the world is thinking about, and especially people with large sums of money. Um, Japan went negative 10 years ago. Uh, Europe's just gone negative. What that means is that there's only one place to get returns in sovereign credit, and that's in the United States. And that's obviously been pushing the yield curve um, down on the back end. But increasingly, people are needing to put money into alternatives to that. And it's just pushing 
money into credit. It's pushing money into alternatives, and that is going to keep happening um, going forward if interest rates are at this level. You mentioned credit. You're about to combine officially, uh, close the deal with Oak Tree, that combination. What should we expect in the near term in terms of the opportunities that that presents? Well, we've announced closing. It's on Monday. Um, We're excited and thrilled to partner with Howard Marks and Bruce Karsh and their team. They're going to run the business. We're going to help them in any way we possibly can. We think it's an added uh, benefit to our institutional clients to offer their products. Um, and, uh, And in the world we're in where... Um, low rates uh, are pushing money into alternatives. I think our general private equity real estate infrastructure franchise will benefit, and and now we have a credit uh, offering to add to that. That's Bruce Flatt, CEO of Brookfield Asset Management. So, Jason, uh, you know, it's interesting because Brexit certainly has been in the headlines this week, and you guys talked about that. We talked a lot about it, in part because they've got a lot at stake there in London. They're a huge Mm -hmm. landowner and landlord, and obviously they're looking far beyond that as well. It's interesting. Bruce participated later on in the day in a panel with former President Bill Clinton and the current president of Colombia because he's a big asset manager in that country as well. So this guy's got the world on the string. Obviously, Jason, many leaders over at the Global Business Forum, but we also caught up with some royalty. We're talking about Queen Maxima of the Netherlands. She is the UN Secretary General's Special Advocate for Inclusive Finance for Development. Well, and what I found so fascinating about catching up with her was this notion that we talk about developing markets all the time, but in developed markets, this notion of equality and inclusion is just as important. Here's that conversation. I feel like this is an important issue, financial inclusion, because I do feel like in a world where there are, it seems like, a lot of inequalities, being left out kind of of the financial framework and being left behind, that's a big deal. It really changes your outcome in life. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, when I started doing this job, you know, everybody thought it was only for developing markets. And it's also for developed economies. I mean, we're talking about financial health. We're talking about sort of financial products that will really help you invest in your future, protect yourself against shocks in the case of a divorce or a, you know, death of of a family member. But also, uh, you know, to be able to sort of go around the daily cash flow necessities of lives. Uh, Of course, the needs of an American citizen will be very different to a Nigerian citizen, um, but it is extremely necessary. It's, it's uh, something that is universal. It helps you improve your income. It helps create jobs. It, it helps you get better education and save for that education, have access to better health, and also, you know, in general, helps the economy and improve your income. So, right. um, yeah, very good. Well, and it's important that you're here in many ways at the Global Business Forum because it, it feels like you need, obviously, the, the buy-in, as it were, from heads of state and, and governments, but you also really need the buy-in of corporate leaders as well. Tell us about the response you've gotten from the, the corporate side around this issue. It's very good that you say that you differentiate, you know, sort of basically have to get the buy-in of the governments and the regulators because without the good regulation environment and without some help sometimes of the government, um, it will not be possible to make this uh, true. Now, at the same time, this can only be done by the private sector. I mean, this is not mm. CSR. This is a, a business. It just a, We have to make it make sense to make this a business also to giving it to poor people. So for that, it's very important to actually have innovation and partnerships and uh, thinking the business in a different way. And in that sense, technology has played a very important role. You know, we're not talking about having a bank branch, uh, you know, going to somewhere in rural Ghana to do this. Because Makes no sense, never right? Be, yeah, you'd never be financially sustainable. So 
today we have so many people with a mobile phone, but they do not have a bank account. So we could actually reach them with a bank account just in the phone. And they can actually make transfers, they can save, they can see how much they've saved, you know, have an insurance, make the claim on the insurance, all with the little power you have in your hand. And that has really made a big difference. Now, we see, for example, in Kenya, uh, I mean, a huge amount of people, 21 million people have now a mobile account, and mm -hmm. that is done with done by a, uh, a telecom operator. So that is one private sector that actually do a huge work for financial inclusion. Banks have actually done a huge work for financial inclusion. So I think that the private sector is essential to actually uh, make this come true. And the one thing that we do see is that we need to have dialogue between regulators and innovators in this financial sector arena so that, you know, we can actually make this happen because yeah. otherwise it's not going to happen. I thought it was interesting too, Bob Iger of the Walt Disney Company was here at one of the panels and making this, you know, he was asked about, you know, doing business in different countries and he goes, I don't really think of countries, I think of cultures. And I do think about looking at a particular area, thinking about the people, you know, very individualized in terms of maybe how what kind of financial systems they need and i'm assuming that you you guys are looking at that and trying to figure out what makes sense in a different or specific region around the world no absolutely if you look at india for example india has a host that's a huge market so you can actually have a lot of competitors so you can have a lot of systems running mm -hmm. you know alongside of each other instead actually have a scalable you know sector in very small countries probably a lot of the public goods or payment systems have to be common because is not one company will be able to afford to make such a big investment because mm -hmm. it's a very small market if you have want to have it competitive. So uh, one size does not fit all, but we do know certain things. And uh, the one thing that we always have to have is that the regulatory framework is prone to innovation that actually speaks to companies so that you know they can readjust innovation, um, uh, the regulation to innovation. And at the same time, all these new technologies have fantastic opportunities but they also have new risks. Right. Yeah. The data privacy breaches, there could be exclusion from algorithms that actually exclude more than include. Uh, you could actually have cybersecurity attacks, the need of actually have very interoperable systems, uh, the need to have IDs that are digital and unique and biometrical. So all these issues need to be talked between the public and the private sector in order to make this sort of a sustainable, not right. on the financial side in the private sector, but also from the consumer perspective. And that's Queen Maxima of the Netherlands. So impressive. She's been working on this for a number of years. This is not a fly-by-night assignment for her. She's really gone deep, and she's there every year at the Global Business Forum engaging with not only her fellow world leaders, but also heads of companies because they've ultimately got to be a big part of the solution. Well, one of the major themes of the Global Business Forum is all about public-private partnerships, and she approaches financial inclusion uh, from that perspective, who she can work with, who she can bring together to get this done. One of the big corporate leaders at the Global Business Forum, Carol, was Carlos Brito. Brito is what everybody calls him inside the company and around the world. They've got a global footprint, of course, and from the perspective of sustainability, he's very practical because what he says is, no water, no beer. Here's that conversation. So, Carlos, here at the Global Business Forum, we're obviously talking a huge amount about sustainability. Where is the rubber really meeting the road for you? I mean, what are the numbers that you can share with us around how that manifests through ABNBEV? Oh, great question, because uh, we often say, because it is the case, that sustainability is not just a part of our business, an add-on. 
It is our business. Sustainability is our business. Reason is very simple. Without water, there's no beer. Without healthy farming and quality farming, there are no raw materials. And without uh, communities that are environmentally sound, I cannot get those materials from. So for us, sustainability has always been front and center in our business. For example, the importance of water mm-hmm. is our main raw material. 95% of beer is water. So, I mean, it's very important for us to guarantee um, source uh, that's, uh, that's of high quality, that has uh, constant availability, so we can place assets close to sources. Uh, so, for me, water has been something that's always in our mind. And most of the water that we consume is not really in the four walls of our brewery. It's in the ag business, in right. agriculture, where we draw the raw materials from. That's why we have a big connection with the farmers we've always had, and more and more with technology, trying to exchange best practice, giving your type of soil, your microclimate, your kind of seed, on when to water, when to harvest, when to seed, uh, because uh, those things make a huge difference on the impact or not that you have on the natural resources you're using. And has it changed sort of where and how you spend money from a CapEx perspective in terms of going after those sustainability goals that you've set out? Well, within the four walls of the brewery, there's a lot of technology that has allowed us, for example, in the last 10 years to reduce the consumption of water by 30% uh, per liter of beer produced. Yeah. So that's huge. Uh, on the field, it's much more about things that, we've, that have always been part of, has always been part of our business like seed development that are more resistant to this kind of microclimate combination with soil. Uh, but it's more about best practice sharing. Mm-hmm. It's more about being closer to farmers. So it's sometimes in some emerging markets, more about training farmers. So they go from subsistence level sometimes to a commercial level, and they get more yield from the same acreage right. that, they, that they manage. All right. Talk to me about the global consumer right now, because it feels like businesses overall, if I had to generalize, are a little bit cautious. We've got a trade war going on, et cetera. And yet the consumer globally, certainly here in the United States, feels very healthy. You are at people's table. You're in the bar. You're in the restaurants. How does the consumer feel to you? Well, if you look at our half one this year, it has been a very good year for us, half one. And if you look at our main countries, U.S., Brazil, Mexico, China, South Africa. Uh, I mean, in Brazil, consumers have been a little under pressure the last three, four years, now getting better. South Africa also a little bit under pressure, but that was um, not different than two or three years ago. But uh, in general, because we're a global business, we see uh, uh, a good environment for our business. You mm-hmm. know, It's uh, not without challenges, but that's always the case. So we, we don't see that uh, what we read sometimes in papers. The other thing is that our production is very much localized. Right. So a lot of the things about restrictions, about trade, about uh, flow of goods, that doesn't really necessarily affect us. Always affects a little bit, but 95% of what we produce, we source locally, we brew locally, we sell locally. So it's a bit different. Right. So we're brewers, so we're always paying attention to what's happening to our consumer. Uh, we're not economists, so I don't have an opinion on some of this trade conversations. But if it's good for our consumers, we're happy. Right. And what are they drinking right now? What's different? Uh, new, we talk about, or you talk about premiumization. Premiumization, uh, yeah. yes. Yeah, so what, what does that actually mean? How does that translate into top line and bottom line? Well, that's very interesting because in the old days, you would expect premiumization to be happening in more mature markets, more developed markets. Today, premiumization is a global phenomenon because middle class is surging everywhere. 
especially in the emerging markets. And when people, you know, go from uh, this kind of income to this kind of income, they change habits. Yeah. And they start affording things that they couldn't afford before. And that's the whole idea of premiumization. Premiumization is a latecomer to beer. When you think about wine, spirits, cars, technology, so many other things, premiumization has been there forever. In beer is a more recent phenomenon, but because it's recent, it has still long, long way to go. Right. So that's the good news for beer about premiumization. And it's everywhere, emerging markets, more mature markets everywhere. And how much are you developing that in-house? How much of that may come from M&A activity? Well, no, mostly come from organic. Yeah. We have an amazing uh, portfolio of global beers. We have uh, Corona, we have Stella Artois, we have Budweiser, our flagship brand. And those brands, they travel well, they complement each other in terms of positioning, and they sell at a premium price. Right. And that's pretty much uh, how we built our company. It was always this idea of let's build brands that command a premium so we can have the kind of margins we have, so we can afford and attract the kind of people we have, so we can continue to not only do that, but continue to reinvest in the business organically and also from time to time inorganically. Let's talk about Asia. You pulled off an IPO there after yes. one false start. You got it out. Second biggest IPO uh, outside of Uber, uh, only behind Uber this year. What does that tell you about that market? And what does it tell us about the strategy going forward? Well, our business in Asia is an amazing business. We're the number one brewer, uh, especially in the premium segment in Asia overall. In China, we're the number three in volume but uh, number one in profitability by a wide margin, and that's because of the premium brands we sell, the commanded premium, and higher margins. So the idea of the IPO has always been to establish and to create a local champion mm -hmm. that could uh, be a vehicle for other consolidations and other things we could do in Southeast Asia, mainly. Um, and that's done now. It's in the process. Uh, shares will start trading next Monday, the 30th. Uh, and yeah, so very happy to be where we are. And so is that a playbook that you might use in other places around the world, say in Africa, maybe, the, you know, the sort of model that you set out in Asia, or is this a, a no, different sort of thing? No, that's very much a mirror of what we have in Latin America. Right. We had in Latin America for many years, in which we had a local champion, Ambev, that's listed, controlled by us. And Ambev was an amazing vehicle to talk and uh, get to deals with local families in different countries and really expand within the region. We think that same magic could happen now in Asia. Okay. And when you think about, you know, part of the reason to, to do this deal was to pay down some debt, uh, how far along are you in, the, in that process, and what are some other moves you might consider to, to keep on that track? Well, the main reason for the IPO was really to create the local champion yep. because, as we said from day one, we don't need that to get to our target of being net debt to EBITDA below four times by the end of next year, 2020. But we felt we needed a local champion there to mirror what we have in Latin America. But, of course, the proceeds that we're getting, 5 to 5 plus billion, will be used, of course, to, to pay down that, as with the proceeds that will come from the Australian right. sale, around $11 billion. Got it. Uh, one last question for you. When you think about the, the cannabis market, you and I have been talking about this for a couple of years now. Tell me where you are in sort of testing uh, that out. You've got a relationship, I believe, with Tilray. Tilray yeah. uh, how is that going? What do we expect to see next? Well, to this, to this day, what we have is this. We have a, a relationship, a joint venture with Tilray in Canada and for Canada only because that's where it's legal. At this point, we're only doing R&D. We're not commercializing anything. We haven't made a decision to commercialize anything. 
So we're only trying to solve some issues in terms of beverages, non-alcohol beverages infused mainly with CBD mm-hmm. that we're studying. But we haven't made a decision yet to go to commercialization. But again, it's only for Canada where it's legal, where you can do R&D. Um, we're still waiting for the beverages to be legal, so we cannot do anything, not even in Canada. Right. But it's not for the rest of the world, not for the U.S., only Canada. You seeing any impact on the sort of booming cannabis market on beer sales at all? Can you it's, track it's that? It's amazing enough. To eat, it's too early to call. Yeah. We're, we're following that, trying to understand uh, the occasions, consumer needs, and all that. But it's too early to call. We still have. We still need more data points and, and more time to understand all the the different interactions. That's Carlos Brito, chairman and CEO of AB InBev. And what's interesting too in this time of so many. Uh, trade wars, it feels like, and heightened trade tensions. I mean, they do a lot of their business locally, right? right? So that's a way of avoiding it. Right. And they really do have to think about the ecosystem, literally and figuratively, the land, the agriculture, the people on the ground who are actually producing mm-hmm. their products. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live get our daily podcast for the ride home get that at bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts and you can get this week's edition of the magazine it is on newsstands now we'll be back right here next week at the same time this is bloomberg bloomberg